The history of television is a history of failure. For every television series that lasted years and years, there were dozens that lasted only one season or less. But did they deserve to die? Or were they... Cancelled too soon? And welcome to the first ever episode of All the Best, the podcast in which Whitney Seibold and I review every single nominee for Best Picture ever, ever, ever. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. And you should know who we are by now. You're well, pa- well, I guess if you're hearing this, you're not a Patreon subscriber yet. Uh, not necessarily. Everyone gets this episode. Everyone gets this episode. Throughout the month of April. On uh, the Cancelled Too Soon podcast, uh, we have been recording and releasing a whole bunch of pilot episodes for potential bonus podcasts. This is the last installment in that series. Only our Patreon subscribers get to decide which one will go to series, and that series will be available exclusively at Patreon. But the pilot episode... Everyone gets. So everyone gets to enjoy this. If you want to vote, you go to patreon.com slash canceled too soon and let us know which one you want us to continue doing. Uh, Most of these podcasts that we have been doing are ideas we've had for a long time. Mm -hmm. Some of them predate canceled too soon. Uh, (laughs) This actually, I think, started initially as a series you were doing at Nerdist in which you're going to review every Best Picture nominee. Or Best Picture winner. Best Picture winner. Yes. I was writing reviews of all the Best Picture winners. Uh, and and they they canned my ass around 1954, so I, I didn't get very far. But uh, when, you I, I were, was, when you were reviewing the film from 1954, that's you, right. Nerdist right. wasn't around in the 50s, although that would have been pretty interesting. Uh, well, the, what would that the, have been? The, the internet was different back then; it was steam powered. <laughs> yeah, you had to wind it up. Everything on Nerdist was about like them and and, uh, it, and Forbidden Planet. It would be there. There was there was a, a burgeoning sci-fi fan. Community in the 1950s? Did you hear the new fan theory about Captain Video? (laughs) (laughs) Tobor (laughs) was built out of Robbie. I don't know. But um, but regardless, you know, there's this whole history of the Academy Awards. A lot of people love the Academy Awards. They follow the Academy Awards. You and I, and as critics, and I think anyone who follows them for long enough can agree that they're not necessarily a great arbiter of quality all the time, necessarily, Mm. but... When you are nominated for Best Picture, or really any Academy Award, you are on the record books. And there is a chance that someone will go back and actually look at your film Mm. and see how it is gauged for posterity. But the further back you get, the fewer films people see. And honestly, after a while, if you didn't win Best Picture, there's a decent chance you faded into some obscurity. So the idea behind this podcast is we would watch every nominee from every single year, one year per podcast. Yeah. And... uh in the case of this first year, not only are some of these films unseen, uh, large portions of some of these films are lost. Um, in fact, uh, one of the Best Picture nominees we will have to skip because uh, that one's just gone. Uh, the uh, the would be the, if we if this gets taken to series, it'll be mm-hmm. the second episode. There's a film called The Patriot. Uh, I understand maybe some footage is available. We'll do some research on it if that's the case. But yeah. Yeah, and and that happens. You know, film archiving uh, wasn't always the best, and fires and nitrate film stocks would occasionally just, or or they just degrade. The film just rots, and you just don't have it anymore. Uh, One of the films we're going to be talking about uh, on this episode of All the Best Mm -hmm. was thought to be lost for many, many years until it was found in the private collection of Howard Hughes, Mm -hmm. uh, who produced the motion picture. Uh, I think was found after he died, and they restored it. Um, we were fortunately were able to to track down a copy of it, and we have uh, a slightly shortened version. Unfortunately, I think about really? I think about ten minutes are gone. Well, that's the, the mm. best we can do in some of these cases. Mm. Um, the first annual Academy Awards were uh, somewhat unusual by today's standards. The winners were announced long before the ceremony. There were different categories. Uh, they, I think they were actually encompassed about two different years. Um, it was, yeah, it was from August 1st, 1927, or 1927, 1927 to... Uh, 
the late, late 28. July 28. Yeah, so they yeah, hadn't was... clearly codified it by year by that mm-hmm. point. Um, so, yeah, when, when you go back over uh, Academy history, usually it's listed as 27 slash 28. Yeah. And 28, 29. And it wasn't until, like, I think the fourth Academy Awards where they just had it from January 1st to December 31st as sort of the year. And, uh, and you know, the first annual Academy Awards were... Um, Kind of interesting. Uh, so there were there was a there was a category for best title writing because all of these films that we're going to be reviewing in this one were silent. Yeah. Um, and title writing were the title cards that would play in between scenes or for dialogue, and that was an art form in and of itself. And that art form is basically kind of gone. We still see on screen titling, but the level of prominence that it had in the silent era it really mm. isn't a thing anymore. Um, we, and, and that's different from the screenplay, yeah, because the screenplay uh, would only set up up the shots and like put out what was going to happen in the scenes. The actual written dialogue was a separate entity. Uh, I think that would depend on the production. Like, like but they, regardless, they, work, they work together. But, yeah. but regardless, title writing, I think it was also part of it was calligraphy. But oh, wow. um, the uh, there were honorary awards given that year for Charlie Chaplin, uh, also for uh, the jazz singer, which had just come out mm-hmm. and had introduced synchronized sound. Uh, and that, of course, changed the industry completely. Mm-hmm. And after. There was one more silent nominee the following year at the Academy Awards, and then after that, pfft, nothing until the artist, and even the artist was a sync sound film. Mm-hmm. Um, it just was made in a silent style. Um, so the nominees that we're going to be talking about on this particular episode uh, are The Racket, uh, which is a gangster picture, mm-hmm. uh, Seventh Heaven, which is a, uh, a, a World War I melodrama, and the winner... Which I think a lot of people know about mm-hmm. Wings, which was also World War One melodrama. <laughs> um, let's we're gonna we're gonna go in the alphabetical order here, and let's talk about a film that I don't think a lot of people know about. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the Racket. Well, what is the Racket? The Racket is a, a Chicago crime movie, and boy, howdy, is it a great. Uh, <laughs> I had a lot of fun with yeah, this. Yeah, great, great Chicago crime movie. Um, it's about uh, corruption in the police force and this really uh, grizzled-looking criminal. Uh, let me Nick look up the, Scarcy, Nick played Scarcy. By, by Louis Wolheim. Louis, Louis, a role that was originated mm-hmm. by Edward G. Robinson on on, uh, on the stage. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, that was actually okay. one of the things that made Edward G. Robinson um, a star. What made him uh, uh, such a fixture in all these gangster pictures was he was part of playing his Playing gangsters play. on, on, yeah. on stage. Uh, Louis Wolheim has a face like a fist. It, it's... <laughs> Like has one of those great old like a, like a flat Looks nose like a Dick and big Tracy lips, villain. yeah. And yeah. and indeed, you're watching the racket, and you realize where Dick Tracy kind of came from. Uh, in Dick Tracy, all of the, the the criminal characters had like distorted features and names to match, like prune face or flat top, and they were kind of trapped within their own bodies. And you see an old melodrama, like all all of the old like silent movies, all operated on in sort of this heightened. Arena of of drama that well, we don't this, really have. Like there was a realism. visual shorthand that they and, needed to use. Well, uh, there was a visual shorthand. This was still at a time when a lot of the actors you found in movies were still stage actors who moved into film. Um, Mary Pickford was kind of changing the way acting was done on film. She was acting to a camera, but a lot of these players are still playing to a big room, even though there's a camera right in front of them. And they look really distinctive, and their gestures and their expressions are really broad. And as such, you know, it it doesn't feel realistic in the way we've come to to become accustomed to in the way uh, in cinema. So... It's really uh, kind of refreshing and kind of grand to see this big style of acting and these really sharply featured people acting out these really broad stories. There's no room for subtlety. And uh, <laughs> well, unfortunately, in, in all of the films we're going to be talking about today, they were big melodramas. Yeah. So they weren't. They didn't need any subtlety for the mm. most part. They're, these are told in really broad strokes. Uh, the Racket is a story, you said, of, of Chicago crime. It stars uh, Louis Wolheim as Nick Scarcy, who is basically Al Capone. Mm. Uh, he runs uh, uh, the bootlegging uh, uh, racket 
in Chicago. He also has a bunch of people paid off, both in the police department, judges, and he's like working both angles in an upcoming mayoral election. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's very open about it. Like oh, yeah. he'll, he walks into rooms full of people and saying, yeah, I bought that guy. I bought you. Can I buy you too? Yeah. He, what does he give a shit? He's untouchable. We'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. Uh, and his arch nemesis, if you will, is Captain James McQuig. <laughs> played by White, Tom- Whitey McSquareson. Yeah, played by Thomas Megan, uh, an actor I'm not terribly familiar with. Um, and the opening of this movie is so fucking great. So it cuts to like, we see all of these like guys with guns like hanging out of windows, like they're in the middle of a war zone about to snipe each other. Mm. And you see this guy walk down the street and someone takes a shot at him. Like it's a mm. bunch of suspense. Someone takes a shot at him and he dives into a corner. Dives into a doorway. And this tough guy comes in and says, You're not wanted around here. And they have this big tough guy talk. And you realize, Oh man, this guy who almost got shot is like this big tough gangster. And then we see both those two tough dudes go off to the respective place of business and the guy who was very clearly codified as mm-hmm. the detective the guy who's protecting the neighborhood from this guy who's just we don't want his type around mm-hmm. is actually the bad guy yeah <laughs> and the good guy is actually the one who seems like the bad guy mm-hmm. all along and right away we see a film and this is a pre-code film which is very important uh, that's really talking about the blurred lines between criminality mm. and the law. And when the criminals become too powerful, is it even possible to use the law against them? Or do you have to break the law to get them? This movie was actually... Um, was it banned? It was, it was banned mm. in Chicago. Oh, yes. Because it portrayed Chicago government mm. as corrupt and the police as... Mm corrupt and that's the sort of thing that you really couldn't do as unapologetically after the Hayes Code was in, was uh, was brought into play. Now again, if you don't know what we're talking about, the Hayes Code, aka the Production Code, was a, se- a set of standards and practices yeah. morally mm. uh, that movies in Hollywood had to follow or else they potentially could have run the risk of being censored by the government. So they created a form of self-censorship. Mm. And this form of self-censorship was incredibly rigid and incredibly confining. And yeah, you see that'd... a lot of the best movies ever made are straining against the boundaries of this code, which among the things they said was someone who does bad things has to be punished by the end of the movie. Mm. It's hard to do a crime story like that. It's pretty, you're going to run into these moral parables a lot. Mm. And uh, it's kind of odd to see the things that came out of the Hayes Code. Uh, sex wasn't allowed. Mm, no. like, there, there was some casual nudity in uh, pre-code movies. Mm-hmm. There were like you know sexy scenes of women in underwear, but there was never like swimming. Yeah, there, there was never like you know out and out porn or anything. But well, it was, there might have been. But I we guess didn't, but, it wasn't mainstream. I mean, there, mm-hmm. there was, but it was like a stag reels and eight millimeter, millimeter reels at private homes, but. Right. There was, there's always been porn. Yeah, <laughs> as soon as you could photograph something, you photograph as soon as you people. Could draw having, something, yeah, porn, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. as a result, you couldn't have a lot of overt sexuality in movies. So it's really fun to go back and watch films made during the code to see how they kind of snuck it in. Yeah, and there, it's uh, no mystery why cigarettes became really popular. Uh, throughout the 1940s, because that was code for like kissing and touching. There's something people could do with their mouths. It was a sexy thing they could put on camera that mm-hmm. wasn't overtly sex. There were a lot and, of metaphors. Uh, yeah, so cigarettes became a, a sex metaphor thanks to movies, and because of that, more people smoked. It's yeah, the, it's, it's yeah, this, this A to B to Z thing because of the Hayes Code. But so, anyway. so in this movie, we have a lot of violence. A lot of people get shot. We mm. see a lot of corruption. We see a hero who ultimately saves the day through mm. at least some mild form of corruption. He does circumvent the law only when he knows someone else has already broken it. But mm. still, vigilante justice in a he's, lot of ways. He, he he's Ed, he's Edmund Exley from L.A. Confidential in a lot of ways. Yeah, he is. He wants to do the right thing. He chooses the wrong way to do it, but in the end, it might work. That okay. And in fact, LA Confidential is actually a great lens through which to view this. It mm-hmm. really does feel like LA Confidential, like the makers of that film, were aware of the record. <laughs> or at least they were aware of the remake. Yeah, this movie a, was remade um, in 1951. 51, yeah, yeah, with Robert Mitchum 
Um, which I haven't seen the remake. Have you seen the remake? No. Okay. Uh, if we'd had more time, I might have tried to watch <laughs> that as well. Um, so, okay. So the plot is the, this this gangster, Nick Scarcy, is completely untouchable. By the way, if this sounds like it might have been inspired by the Untouchables, it was not. All of that stuff with Elliot Ness and Al Capone mm. happened after this movie came out. <laughs> which is amazing to me. Because mm. it really does feel like the blueprint for the Untouchables. Um, Criminals just aren't that creative, I guess. I guess there, there's only certain, so many ways you can break the law. Uh, Nick Scarcy, uh, you know, he controls everything. He has a younger brother who is mm. naive and he wants to keep him out of the business. But his younger brother falls in love with a singer uh, who, through a series of sort of bad luck, ends up getting the brother arrested for hit and run. Mm-hmm. He, uh, they have a fight. She walks out. A policeman tries to investigate. Say, hey, what are you doing to this young lady? Meh. And the guy just panics and runs away and hits someone with her car. The cop sees it. Mm-hmm. And now this little brother is in jail. And Captain Quig, McQuig, M- Captain McQuig, Captain uh, uh, is now in a position where, oh, I have something on Nick Scarzi and there's nothing he can mm-hmm. do about it. Nick Scarzi comes in to get his little brother out of jail, runs into the one cop who can't be bought. <laughs> fucking shoots him in the back yeah in in the, in the police station in front of people yeah <laughs> and so everything just starts escalating and the tension mounts how is it even possible for this guy to get out of it and he starts saying things like i'm i'm when like it turns out the mayor he bought off even he can't get him out of it and he just says i'm gonna tell the whole world uh, everything your entire organization is about to commit suicide <laughs> ah it's awesome uh meanwhile the young woman who fell in love mm. with uh or, or at the very least was seduced saying Scarzi's she was brother. Sedu- she was sedu- she was in charge there yeah she was because he's a mealy mouth little wimpy guy and you got the impression she was partly doing it because Scarzi is an asshole mm. uh so she is in in jail with all of the prostitutes they keep them all in the same room and there's with, with the lesbian prostitutes oh yes one of them flirts with her like just openly yeah it's great <laughs> isn't that great it's really cool uh, and then this this guy who was a witness to the murder in the police lobby He's this, like, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you know, mm. saintly guy who doesn't, like... He's a he's a reporter, and all the other reporters who are obviously drunk all the time, uh, they're <laughs> well, like, you know, wow, well, this we, guy's... We, we work journalism, we know the truth. But, like, this guy's like, you know, uh, you know, ah, look at this guy, he's brand new, and the guy is just like, I'm not new, I was with the Montana Tribune for one month! And they, like, <laughs> roll their eyes. But, like, he, like, brings, like, her a change of clothes, and he brings this virginal white dress. Mm-hmm. And she has a line. Obviously, it's it's not spoken aloud. It's written mm-hmm. down. But I made sure I wrote it down, because this is not something you could do after the Hayes Code. <laughs> I wonder what will happen if you ever have a baby, and no one's tipped you off about storks. <laughs> That's basically just saying, you ain't never uh, fucked before, have you? I, uh... I- <laughs> I, I love the dialogue in this movie. Yeah. Um, all of the intertitles are written in slang. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of it may seem like really familiar to us now because that sort of gangster patois uh, made its way into movies in a big way f- yeah. for decades. Referring to a um, gun as a rod. That yeah. Kind of um, thing. Every single character speaks in that sort of gangster slang, except for the cop. Mm. But yeah, whenever we get the inter- intertitle, there's always like we- weird little turns of speech and little phrases that I couldn't quite put my finger on at first. It's like kind of sidling into language sideways. And I think that really enriched the the movie. I think that really kind of revealed the racket's ambition to really put a button on crime. And I think that might be why it was nominated for Best Picture. Because it, it's not just a, a crackerjack cr- crime story, although it is that. Mm. I think it really was um, going for something a little bit bigger than that. I think it was really trying to codify and define uh, Chicago crime at the time. Yeah. I will say this. I was very surprised. If you watch a lot of silent movies, mm. you'll notice that most silent movies avoided using dialogue except when they had to. Exactly. The Racket is full of dialogue. The Racket is actually maybe the most dialogue-heavy silent film I have ever seen. Oh, I've I've seen worse, but well, yeah. it's, it's up there though. It's a really mm. un, it's uncommon amount of dialogue in it, and the dialogue's great. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's really sharp. It really does just throw you in the middle of it. I was actually really struck by the way this film was photographed. Mm. Um, 
one of the things that we think of when we think of cinema a lot is we tend to think of widescreen. Well, mm. widescreen wasn't really invented until the early 50s. Until then, most films were shot in a square, mm. or more or less a square. And it was one, called Academy Ratio. Yeah, 1.37 to 1. Which is essentially 1 to 1, but yeah. I, this was, was, come on. Subtly as, different. As a projectionist, I take exception to that. Fair enough. My point is, <laughs> you is do that, 1 to 1, you're, you're screwing something up. Okay, well, in any case, mostly a square. Squarish. Squarish. Okay. Fine. My point is this. Uh, the type of photography we think of when we think of widescreen tends to be epic and side to side. When you're framing something for a mostly square image, mm. uh, uh, you're, you, in order to create a sense of scale, you have to be more clever than that. And one of the things the racket does is it works a lot with height. Yeah. There's a lot of shots with like a lot of headspace. There's like that little brother character as he's like put up against the wall. He's like him in like the lower third of the frame, and there's a white wall behind him. And then the shadows of the cops fill the frame. <laughs> it is such a great shot. There's also a lot well, of and yeah. There, there's a lot of uh, tracking shots and camera movement, which was really uncommon in in the silent days because the cameras were so large. Mm. Uh, and yeah, or that first scene you were talking about is kind of a tracking shot from the building tops. Yeah, it's looking t- down into the street and yeah. you that, get the sense of like that whole like uh, urban mm. environment and just the the scale of it mm. is so huge but you don't it's not in widescreen it's in height it's yeah, really and, and, and you can tell it's a set but it looks like a just a real city street and it when you see these people sort of darting in and out it fills this frame with little tiny details that your eye like are just barely per- perceiving it's really really crackerjack filmmaking there's this, re- there's this really great sequence in which uh, Captain McQuig and a whole bunch of his cops they know something's going to go down at this intersection and they're on the street and they don't see anything and this is great you know montage of them like looking around and then the camera looks upward and you see mm-hmm. that the criminals are on the rooftops and they're signaling each other with mm-hmm. flashlights and it's like <laughs> that's cool man there's also a bunch of really Really interesting visual effects in this. There's a funeral sequence, mm. um, and it's the sort of thing we might not even think of as a visual effect nowadays. But at the time, this was a complicated photographic effect. Uh, there's a funeral sequence in which Nick Scarzi is like, you know, there's the he has killed one of his rivals in the middle of a club. A really cool sequence. Mm. Uh, and now he's at the funeral, and which is something Al Capone apparently would do. He would kill you, and then he'd throw you the hell of a funeral. Flowers everywhere, apparently. Um, and every single gang member in Chicago is there. Mm-hmm. And they're all sitting facing each other like in an aisle. <laughs> and they all have their hats in their in their laps. And then Nick Scarzi looks at that great shot and everyone's got their hats in their laps. Mm-hmm. And then you see like Superman X-ray vision style. Everyone's got a gun under their hat. Oh, yeah, That's yeah. a complicated shot mm-hmm. at a time when there was no digital intermediate. That was a photographic effect mm-hmm. they had to do in camera or, they, or they, overlaying the they, negative. Yeah, they, and, they lay the, the negative over yeah, each other. There's a couple of different ways to do it. My point is, that's complicated, and it was worth it. It's really great. <laughs> I really dug this movie. I mean, yeah. what, are, what are your other thoughts on it before we move uh, on? Just, uh, I, I love the energy to it. I love how, how quickly it moved. Uh, I love... We talked about broad archetypes, and these are not just, like, grizzled no- film noir types. Um, first of all, film noir hadn't been named yet. And this uh, is and, inventing and a lot of this is Yeah, a, lo- a lot of this stuff yeah, wasn't really codified in a sort of meaningful way. Um, but it still deals with these sort of really broad characters, and it's not just brooding, dark villains. Mm-hmm. There's actually a heck of a lot of energy and humor and brightness that I really appreciated with uh, the, the gangster's mall or with the, the terribly sniveling little brother who I actually really enjoyed watching him. Yeah. And Nick is great. Nick is a one like a wonderful movie villain, and uh, he, he since he's from such the early days of cinema, he's not going to be entering conversations about great movie villains. But he kind of ought to. He should. He, he helped sort of mm. codify what we think of as a gangster. Mm. I, if you ever watch, and you should, because I think it's a great movie. Historically, like the history is bullshit, but the movie is great. Mm. Brian De Palma's Untouchables. Okay. Uh, I really do think he watched this movie. Oh, you bet he did. Yeah, you can tell. Like the way again, there's a lot of rooftop action as well. The relationship between Elliot Ness and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Al Capone in that movie is very much in that sort of. We can have conversations because what, what are you going to do? Arrest me? And I, 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 also, you know, De Palma watched The Racket oh, just so just so he could brag about that he watched it. <laughs> well, he, I actually, he seems like that kind of filmmaker. I actually think the I think the last 
lines in The Untouchables are a twist reference on the last lines and the racket. Because at the end of the racket, the bad guy is dead. Mm. McQuig has saved the day, but maybe at the cost of some of his ethics. And someone, I think a reporter asks him, what are you going to do now? And he says, oh, I'm going to do the paperwork. I'm going to go see the judge and everything. And mm. by the time I'm done with all that, it'll be time for mass. Yeah. Which is a great <laughs> last line. The end of Untouchables, Elliot Ness has just sent Al Capone to jail. Al Capone, as you probably know, even though he was uh, a gang leader and a murderer and a, mm. a bootlegger, he went to jail for tax evasion. And at the end of all of it, the reporter asks Elliot Ness, "You just sent Al Capone to jail for bootlegging. What are you going to do? What are you going to do after they if they ever repealed prohibition?" And the guy just says, "I'm a drink. I'm a drink, yeah." <laughs> and I think that's the sort of thing where it's just like just a little bit more grizzled than the racket because mm. the racket does have to throw that one little moral thing. Although the other thing I appreciated, the gangsters mall and the very sweet innocent guy who clearly loves her, mm. they do not end up together. No, they he does don't. Not save her. That would have happened, in, and even post production <laughs> code, they would have done that. Yeah, yeah. that's and, really refreshing. And that, that's sort of the the cheap shot ending we get from Seventh Heaven. Yeah, I liked Seventh Heaven a lot until the ending. The, I the, the ending, ending is, is it's pretty just, cheap. It's just really corny. So, what it, well, I think the whole movie's comparatively kind of corny, and uh, you can put Seventh Heaven up against wings mm-hmm. and wings just sits on its head you know <laughs> seventh heaven is like wings light yeah it, via dickens in a weird way yeah okay so seventh heaven is mm. the next uh, uh best picture nominee we're going to talk about uh it came out in 1927 and actually won a bunch of academy awards and mm. won the academy award for best director mm. it won the academy award for best actress uh for janet gaynor uh this was actually early on in the oscars you could be nominated for an award for multiple films released throughout the same year. It wasn't just like one performance, one movie. Yeah. Um, which they changed eventually. Uh, but yeah, Janet Gaynor won this for Seventh Heaven, a movie called Street Angel, which I haven't seen, and mm. Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, mm. which won which another is, award. Which one, won, and is one of the best films ever made. <laughs> that's true. And we're going to talk about that a little bit at the yeah. end of this episode. Um, it was directed by Frank Borzage, who uh, was a big big uh cinema fixture uh for decades and this might be one of his more successful movies but he worked into the 40s and he was really prolific and a lot of people who are fans of early westerns are really big fans of his work okay so seventh heaven uh Mm -hmm. takes place in france Mm -hmm. uh at about the outbreak of world war one uh, we are introduced to... It's based on a play. It is based on a play. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are introduced to two main characters, uh, one of whom is Chico. Mm-hmm. Chico is a sewage worker. He works in the sewers underneath France, but and he has a dream of becoming a street sweeper. He, he is, the, he is the, the weirdest character I've ever seen. A hunky, ambitious, cocky sewage worker. <laughs> like, he... <laughs> Like, he's a dick about it. I work a sewage. Someday I'll be a street sweeper. Ha ha! And he's, like, barrel-chested and really handsome. And, like, th- th- this is not a Dickens character. What, what the hell is this character? It's very odd. I mean, he's on an interesting journey over the course of this. Uh, and his co-star is Janet Gaynor, who plays Diane. At the beginning of the movie, Diane is the younger sister of a woman who is addicted to absinthe mm-hmm. and who beats her. And she sends her out to get more absinthe, and while she is gone, the older sister finds out that their rich family, mm-hmm. who they assumed was dead, has come back. And so to rescue and, them. To rescue them. And so she's like, Okay, well we have to we have to be on our best behavior. And then the family comes back, and then Janet Gaynor cannot keep a straight face about all the bullshit she's had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And the family's just like, Well, you you haven't had to do anything untoward, have you? And Janet Gaynor's just like mm-hmm. And then it's like, then we have no daughters. And they throw a couple of dollar bills on the francs on the floor. And it's like, (laughs) this will do. Boom. And then the sister beats her again and chases her out into the street. Again, again, we're dealing with heightened melodrama here. There's no subtlety to any of these stories. So so Diane's sister is... Beating her in the street when Chico pops out from a manhole cover next to them and saves her. Like a ninja turtle. Yeah. He saves her. 
Mm. And then he's a dick to her. And then he's, in, he's like, <laughs> how dare you be beaten, you idiot? Yeah, why don't you stand up for yourself like me? I'm a very remarkable fellow. I am always looking I work, upward. I work in shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's really... And he talks about... And the other thing about this, we talked about pre-code. This is another thing we would never see post-code. Mm. He very proudly talks about being an atheist. Yeah. He says he went to church. Mm. He made a couple of wishes. God didn't do shit. And so he doesn't care anymore. And that will be important later. <laughs> oh, how will it's, it? it? It's it's kind of odd, yeah, how infrequently atheism is brought up th- just throughout films in general. Especially yeah. early on, though, because no. you couldn't have, like, an anti-God movie. So mm. having a protagonist who was an atheist, mm. o- overtly an atheist, who talked about yeah, it, you, 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 British, you run the risk of yeah. making it look cool. So they almost <laughs> never did it. You saw it in British films more frequently. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, American films, it was big. No, no. Yeah. So this guy, mm. he's... He, he doesn't believe in God. He does believe in, in upward mobility. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's in the gutter, but he's looking at the stars. And the plot really kicks in from there when a, pol- a policeman comes by. They've arrested her sister. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, what, is this another lady of the night? We'd better arrest her. And Chico says, no, 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 that's my wife. Uh, and the policeman's like, oh, okay. Well, we're well, we're, we're going to visit you at home tomorrow to make sure you're not lying. So he's like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> so he takes her in. Yep. And she's over the moon. Mm-hmm. She is so grateful. Someone has um, treated did, her nice for the first time in her life, sort of, and that's enough for her. Did you ever read um, America, the Franz Kafka novel? No, I never did. Yeah, where a fellow comes to America, tries to get a job, meets misery at every turn, and ends up pretty much imprisoned with a drug addict. Like and great and look, Kafka, he always wrote really uplifting stories. <laughs> Requiem for uh, an American dream, <laughs> more or less. And and of course, the the last scene of America is almost, almost like a fantasy sequence where he's suddenly free and gets on a train and goes out into the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel like there's a lot of Kafka in this because she's living in misery with this absinthe addict, and when she's given a tiny bit of mercy by this dickish dude. She feel she feels like he's an angel all of a sudden, and he's not evil. He's just a jerk. He's just a jerk. He's just a young, stupid jerk. Yeah, he he doesn't do bad things. He just treats people. He's just a little mean and insensitive. He, he's very selfish. Mm-hmm. And over the time, they only know each other for a few days. Over the course of those few days, he softens. Mm-hmm. And well, she teaches her to be a bit more brave. He has this weird walkway between his he, seventh floor giant he, apartment, by the way. He, he doesn't seem to have a front door. Like, he has to climb in through an attic window. It's yeah, really bizarre. With, like, this weird tiny little bridge between mm. buildings. And he just he just runs off of it cavalierly. And she's like, that's terrifying. How can you do that? And he's just like, you just gotta be brave. And she's like, <laughs> uh, And, yeah, over a few days, mm. she warms his heart. He realizes that he really does care for her. And they're just about to sort of, you know, they just get engaged. Mm. And they just finally, he finally admits that he loves her. And then war breaks out and he's drafted. War were declared. Yeah. So he's got to go away to war. Um, and he vows that every day at 11 a.m. he will come to her via psychic link. <laughs> and they will have a moment, mm. even though they are far apart. And uh, then the movie goes on from there. I feel like you're about to say something. No, it's, it's... okay. Um, so that's a that's a that's a heavy setup. Mm. And we run into them a while later. Uh, she is working at a munitions factory, which I'm glad they established because I was just like. You didn't tell her like how much the rent is or like who the who the landlady well, also, is. It's, is. Also, like, there's this new war effort. You know, the war breaks yeah. out, and you know the, there are things to do, and I think that's historically accurate. No, fair enough. Um, oh, and also in that time, like he leaves for the war, and then like the second he leaves, his her sister comes in. He's like, "I was waiting by the door for him to go." <laughs> now the beating shall commence, and then Janet Gaynor just like grabs the the belt and starts giving her sister like as good as she ever got and she just says I'm brave I'm brave I have done it so it's a strange thing to yell while you're beating someone to within an inch of their life but so, all right. so years go by he's he's been at war this whole time she's working missions factory she is uh, uh, averting the uh, amorous affections of an of a officer of some sort um, and it's very umbrellas of Sherborg. At this point, he's been drafted. A film we watched very recently. Yeah, he's been, and we talked about it on our podcast, critically acclaimed. He's been drafted. Her experiences are not great, but she's holding out hope as long as she can. Mm. And then, sure enough, in a big giant 
war action sequence, he dies. Or he appears to die. Well, he, everyone's around him and they say he's dead and mm. he gives away his marriage necklace to a priest and the priest comes to her. Everyone comes to her at once one, one morning to say her husband mm. is dead. Her neighbor is home mm. from war. He says her husband's dead. She's like, no, I don't believe it. I, that, that, I would know. That's and, very opera. Yeah. yeah. And then like, and then her, the officer she knows is just like, oh yes, I received uh, this word from the front. I'm so sorry. I, 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 I love you, but I would not have wished this upon you. Your, your husband mm. is dead. And she's like, no, that's bullshit. I don't believe you. The priest shows up. Your husband is dead. And then finds like, no, 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 no. It's almost 11. My psychic link is about to kick in. <laughs> and it's not working. And she thinks, oh, God, he must be dead. Meanwhile, down on the street, while everyone is celebrating the end of the war, Chico is running through the streets trying to get home. Pops in at the last minute, except it's not at the last minute. Seriously, you could have shown it at any time. It wasn't like she was mm. about to get married or anything. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's, no, there's real, no, no ticking clock element, as it were. It's just, it's just rescuing her from a really shitty morning. Mm. And he just comes in and it's just like, wait, I'm alive. I'm, and God will never kill me. Also, I'm blind. Also, I'm blind, yeah. <laughs> which means I can see through the eyes of God. Mm. And you're just sort of just like... Uh, so that was the point of this movie? Was this this guy's conversion? I kept expecting, like, I was actually really on board with this. I think this, even though it's, obviously it's the broadest story ever yeah. told, I thought it was really, really well handled. I love the acting, I love the cinematography, the production design is gorgeous. Everything about this movie I was really, really digging until this bit. And even this ending, mm. I was like, oh, I see what they're going to do and why this is going to be incredibly satisfying. Because mm. <clears throat> he shows up at 11 a.m., Mm. And this is like a last goodbye. This is like his ghost or whatever. Yeah, this is like yeah. his punishment for not believing in God. Or this is their big farewell. And it's a big drama about war. Like, nope, he's fine. Mm. And he's gonna says he's going to get over his blindness. He's, he, he'll get over it. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, you really threw this movie away in like the last couple of minutes. Well, it, 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 I feel like they didn't have an ending. It's like, okay, and everything is going to turn to misery. And it seems to me like that's the smarter ending. Where she says, and my, my husband's just not there, and he's just not there, mm-hmm. and he's and he's dead, he's gone, and she, her life just goes back to being miserable. And either she learns to just sort of push her way through that and mm-hmm. mourn, or like she throws herself off a roof. I like, and I, like I think my ending because like my idea is just like okay, he's dead. Mm. But he believed in God, and that there's a heaven, and mm-hmm. the, like there's like you get a little something out of it. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of hope a at least. T- and, ties it up a just little like bit. there's yeah. there's more to the universe than misery. Like that would have been nice, mm-hmm. but yeah, no, I, it's, it's it's the mega happy ending a la Wayne's World. <laughs> the only time yeah, that has ever mm-hmm. worked is in uh, the Last Laugh, which is also a silent movie, mm-hmm. and even then you, it only works because it's so preposterous you don't believe it for one second. Although, and the la- doesn't the Last Laugh have two endings? Like. Well, this is how this is how it ended, but this is how it could have ended, and and they they just sort of run the film back and show the ending again. <laughs> well, the last laugh mm. uh, is a 1924 film directed by F. W. Murnau, who also did a Nosferatu, mm. and it's a story of a poor mm. uh, doorman at a fancy hotel. So he's the pride of his very poor community because he's wearing nice clothes and working at a nice place. But as he gets older. They don't want him to be the face of the business anymore, and they throw him in the bathroom as the mm. bathroom attendant, and that starts this steady downward decline of shame and misery and humiliation. <laughs> and it basically, F.W. Murnau wanted to end the movie with the guy just basically dying in humiliation. Mm. And apparently, even in like German expressionist cinema, <laughs> the there were producers. There were producers who were just like, "No, <laughs> we need a happy ending. Hey, we, we, need to, up, dude. we still need to sell this movie." Yeah. So he made an ending. So he ended it. And mm. then there's a like, there's only like one title card in the whole movie, and it's like right here, and it, or two or three, mm. but this is one of them. And it's just like, well, normally that's how this sort of thing would go. Fortunately, he found a big sack of money. <laughs> just then, it just—it's so absurdly mm. happy that it actually makes the real ending even sadder because you know <laughs> that this is not what happened. We—I don't believe it for one yeah. fucking second. Seventh like, Heaven doesn't is not as deft with its mega mm. happy ending as it could have been. And it's a shame because I thought I was really glad I watched it because I think it's really well made. Otherwise, I actually think it kind of lost its way earlier than that. Mm. Uh, As soon as, like as soon as he's drafted and he goes off to war, 
it becomes almost. It, I mean, I, I know this is 1927, 28 that this one came out. Uh, this this one was Listen, 27. 27. So yeah. I, I know this is 1927, but it, it feels old. It feels like the story beats are, are cliched even at this point. Sure. Like, he's going to go off to war. Don't go to the war, Daddy. I have to go to the war, son. And, <laughs> you know, we, we, we can predict every beat that happens. As soon as the draft happens, we can predict every beat that happens from then on out. I would much, I would be much more interested in seeing a character piece with just these two people living together and trying to figure out sort of their common ground and g- getting past their differences. Just yeah. a, a great, per- perfect romance sure. about how they can kind of build a relationship. We had that film that year. It was called Sunrise, about a married couple kind of re- rebonding over having you know, their marriage. Suffering just horrible fractures. Sunrise is great. Mm-hmm. This, when you compare this to Sunrise, it, it's it, it almost feels like trash. Uh, this this is like the the romance novel version of Sunrise. A little bit. So uh, yeah, I was really interested in sort of this character piece and these broad types trying to find common ground, and then he goes to the war, and it's like oh, well, this is just another stupid war drama. Yeah. So I can see why this one didn't win Best Picture. <laughs> um, but what won Best Picture was another war drama, mm. which is actually very similar in a lot of ways. It is called Wings. Mm. Uh, it is still the only fully silent picture to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. Um, it was directed by William Wellman, who had a very long career even after the silent era. Yeah. Uh, and he directed a lot of great sound motion pictures like The Public Enemy, which is one of the best gangster movies ever. Public Enemy is great. Uh, the original A Star is Born. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't he, seen that. I, I, you know what? I haven't seen any A Star is Born. Oh, really? I okay. know there's like 12 of them. I think I saw the original. So. Uh, then there was uh, – he, he directed The Oxbow Incident, which is one of my favorite mm. westerns. Oh, nice. It's incredible. Um, and this – I can totally see why this won Best Picture. Well, this is an incredibly we, well-filmed World War One melodrama. Holy crap! And you've kind of seen this because Scorsese is all over this thing. <laughs> like Scor- Scorsese, like kept a print of this in his bed next to him while he was in film school. <laughs> well, and this is another one that was seen that was supposedly lost for a long time. They mm-hmm. didn't find it until like the early nineties for a while. Uh, and they it was gone for a long time. And they the version they found was like an extended version. So mm. they're they we have the full cut of wings now. Yeah, thank goodness. And uh yeah and thank goodness. Um this is a war picture slash friendship picture slash love square um <laughs> film. Uh there's uh two couples, uh mm. two two uh Hotshot pilots. Mm-hmm. Uh, one's young and uh, kind of impulsive. Mm-hmm. One's a little bit more mature. Yeah. Okay. So there's Jack, um, who is the young hotshot. Okay. Uh, pilot is they played by Charles Rogers. Mm-hmm. His counterpart uh, is the rich snooty guy from the same part of town, uh, named David, played by Richard Arlen. Uh, they are both in love with the same woman, mm-hmm. uh, Sylvia. Sylvia, played by Jobina Ralston. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I'm not 100%. Joe Jabina, I think. One or the other, and I apologize if whichever one of us is wrong. Um, They're both in love with her. Mm -hmm. She is in love with David, but she doesn't tell Jack because she wants to spare his feelings. (laughs) So many many melodramas begin in such a way. And Jack is already dating. They're friends. uh, I I got the sense. She's the girl next door. The paramour. She's She's the girl next door. And she is the ultimate girl next door. Because she's played by Clara Bow. Clara Bow plays Mary. Clara Mm. Bow was known as the It Girl. Partly because she was in a movie called It. Mm. Partly because she was incredible. She she has... When people talk about like star quality or movie star quality, Clara Bow is like one of the people to pioneer that. Yeah. Uh, And it wasn't like Charlie Chaplin and Buster mm. Keaton where she had a persona. Mm. She was just had an acting style and had a particular look mm-hmm. and just she was funny sparkle to her she yeah was she was funny really she, really funny she was uh, uh, sexy she could be very alluring if she wanted to be but she have, also had a vulnerability to her have you seen it i've not seen it it, it is she just uh, most of the movies she's just going on dates with a guy and that's a, and I, going to like a fun house and going to a fair and just having a great old time i can totally see she would nail that because yeah. she's an incredibly talented performer um, so she plays the spunky girl next door mm. who is in love with Jack. Jack is mostly oblivious to this. And when they both get called off to war... There's a little letter mix up. Oh, my God. Mm. Uh, and uh, Mary ends up going into uh, the... Uh, 
well, what's the, it called? The Women's Corps. The Women's Corps. And basically mm. she's driving medical supplies around mm. Europe in the middle of World War One. So while David and Jack are in training... Uh, and then eventually pilots in World War One. She's driving around, and you know that their paths will once again mm. uh, intersect. Uh, David and Jack have an obvious rivalry for obvious reasons, but they actually end up bonding mm. over the course of their training. Their training is really cool, by the way. Like well, they train on the mm. ground a lot, and like these sort of early proto uh, uh, simulators that just mm. look neat. <laughs> just look really cool. Um, Howard Hughes didn't direct or produce this movie, but uh, he... Yes, he, he actually produced The Racket. He produced The Racket, but he didn't produce this one. But he, he loved this movie, and he ended up making a lot of sort of dogfight-heavy movies, uh, and which Scorsese, <laughs> in turn, yeah. recreated for his movie The Aviator. I so, love uh, The Aviator so much. But <laughs> yeah, the, the aerial dogfights, once we finally get into the sky... Mm-hmm. Holy shit. They, okay, so they had to... <laughs> this movie's incredible. There's no way to film a dogfight in 1927 unless you film a dogfight. Yeah. So you have to climb out on the wing of a plane, attach a camera to the wing of the plane, maybe have a camera person there you know, where they can like crash into other planes and stuff. It's really mm-hmm. dangerous. Have them pretend to fight each other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and act while they're doing it. There are shots of people acting, giving their lines of dialogue. I don't know how they in, knew... In was, the cockpits of real planes. How do you even know when to do it, man? Because there are like, planes behind them and you have to be on cue. It's an incredible accomplishment. <laughs> and it is exciting. Early on in this movie, I knew we were in for a visual treat. There mm. is a shot... Is it of, the, the porch swing? Yes. There's a <laughs> shot of... We're introduced to David and Sylvia. Mm. And they are on a porch swing together. And they're swinging, and they're, they got a good swing going. This is not just like a gentle rocking in the breeze. They're mm. really swinging. The camera is attached to that swing, and we are f- on that swing with them going back and forth. Mm. They are steady in the foreground. The background is constantly in, mm. in, in rotation. Swinging back and forth. And for a while, I thought we were looking at was a photographic effect with like rear screen projection, which mm. would have made a lot of sense. And then Jack comes in from the background and grabs them in mid-shot, and I realized, holy shit, <laughs> cameras were huge back then. Camera, cameras weighed as much as a car. They, they were enormous. They would have had to come up with a giant rig mm. just to get a shot on a porch swing. <laughs> oh my god. It's nothing if not ambitious. Holy cow. Um, and it, and uh, my favorite shot of the movie is, and I think it's the most famous shot of the movie, is where uh, I think it's Jack is in a uh, in like a big uh, tavern. He's like mm. in the gigantic party hall and they're, they're celebrating. And the tracking shot is over the tabletop and it mm-hmm. pushes past all of the party goers and people are picking up drinks out of the way of the camera. Again, Scorsese loves this kind of mm-hmm. stuff, and it ends up settling on a drink that Jack is holding. Yeah. Now, they, they, the cameras weren't small enough to put on a dolly that they could have rested on the table. So you, they couldn't have put wheels on it and just pushed it down the table. Also, the table's littered with stuff, so that would have been far just far too complicated. You know they had to construct some kind of crane mechanism mm. to hold well, the camera over the table and push it forward Actually, that way. Uh, uh, I, I don't know exactly how they did it in Wings, but Orson Welles pulled off a number of similar shots mm. in Citizen Kane, although his were a lot less flashy, and you can see them in, like, um, there's that uh, early flashback in Citizen Kane of Charles Foster Kane as a young boy, mm. and there's, like, a shot of a window, and the camera just pulls back and what they actually did was they built the set so it would detach in the middle Mm. and then they just reassembled it as the camera moved nice and they did that a couple of times in citizen kane so maybe they they had that going but it's an impressive feat it's still yeah if you if you saw star wars the last jedi which you probably did that's a shot that they used in the canto bite sequence that's right in the, Um, the big gambling hall so, oh, and one more thing about the the middle of the movie before we move on with the plot. Uh, Gary Cooper is in this <laughs> as, as in, in an early, early, early role for Gary Cooper, and apparently was like a big, like sort of spring to stardom for him. He's in one scene. He plays a, another pilot. So the idea like a, is like a, a cadet. Yeah. So the idea is they have been uh, uh, David and Jack have mm-hmm. been uh, training, and they've never actually been in a plane yet. You have to do all this training before they even mm-hmm. let you in a plane. And they're talking about how, like, oh, they're excited, but they're nervous. And David has this uh, little teddy bear his mother gave him. That's his good luck charm. Mm-hmm. 
And Gary Cooper just comes in and just says, oh, you guys are new to this? Well, you'll be all right. And, oh, I don't have a good luck time. A lot of the boys have good luck times, but I don't have one. Mm. Anyway, good luck. I'll see you up in the sky. Leaves <laughs> five minutes later. Crash. Dead. He's dead. And they're just like, oh, shit. <laughs> this, is re- this is for reals. And it's a good dramatic beat, but it's still weird to see Gary Cooper in that little tiny line. If you don't he's, know Gary I, Cooper, he's an high noon. He's I, incredible. I, I was only reminded of dead meat from Hot Shots. <laughs> Yeah. Well, my mind's Gary, but they all call me dead meat. <laughs> the line of his last flight, he like walks under a ladder and the black cat crosses his path and yeah. she breaks a mirror and it's like, oh, I'm safe here in this plane. And this evidence about the JFK assassination is safe in my pocket. <laughs> like everything to set up that he's going to die. Um, so uh, David and Jack, they fly in World War II. There's a bunch of incredible dogfights. Uh, Mary's story... Uh, collides with theirs when she is told to bring every single soldier who's off on leave getting drunk in Paris. She's got to bring them all back because they're going to be a big push at the end of the war. And she runs into Jack and Jack is drunk as a skunk. Mm -hmm. And he's about to leave with a harlot. And uh, And she she, like kind of swaps herself out. Yeah, her whole thing (laughs) is she he he doesn't even recognize her Mm -hmm. because she's in a uniform and he just doesn't care and he's he's hallucinating bubbles which I'm not sure anyone in this movie knows what being drunk is like you know what we don't know the power of the booze we don't know what he's drinking there that, that could be absinthe but there's there's a lot it's of just big glasses of laudanum <laughs> he's just downing it there's a lot of visual effects of bubbles coming out of things which again i remind you that was a complicated visual effect back then that well, wasn't it, easy it, it, it was animated it was, it was animated onto the frame nevertheless that took mm-hmm. a lot of effort they mm-hmm. didn't have to do that they could have just gotten away with him being drunk they went to the extra effort mm-hmm. um so in order to get his attention and pull him away from all this she dresses up like one of the chorus girls in order to look extra sexy and seduce him away so that he doesn't get court-martialed. Along the way, uh, there's an amusing misunderstanding. A whole bunch of MPs show up, see her with him, and they get her fired (laughs) for being a lady of the evening when she should be working for the the military. So she kind of falls on her sword for this guy, and you're just like, God, he does not fucking deserve her. She's so great. Um, He's humbled by the end, though. He is humbled by the end. So what happens is, at the end, uh, it looks like David has been killed uh, in battle. He's actually uh, crashed behind enemy lines. And Jack has vowed to kill as many uh, Germans as he possibly can in order to avenge the death of his friend. What he doesn't realize is that David has stolen a German aircraft and is flying back to back to and, safety. And Jack, seeing that aircraft, decides, I'll shoot that one down! Oh How tragic in a silent movie sort of way! He shoots like, down his best friend. And David's like screaming at him, Jack, don't you recognize me? <laughs> and then they crash, and they crash into like a house, mm-hmm. and then like... Uh, 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 Jack like lands like nearby and he's pulling off like the German thing from the plane. He's like, this will be a great souvenir. And then like the lady who lived there is like, this guy is in here and he wants to talk to you. And he's like, well, I'll show that German. <gasps> David, no. <laughs> and it's tragic as fuck. And mm. only then does he realize like, like as he's reading through David's mail mm. that Sylvia was never in love with him. Yeah. And she only just didn't want to hurt. She only tried to spare his mm. feelings. Um, and so he goes back home. And, with, uh, with the teddy bear that David used to fly so with, sad. I know. <laughs> and I mean, it's obvious, but it actually really works. It's oh, just very effective. It's a story told in this epic scope. Well, I mean, again, this is silent film telling. Uh, a lot of modern audiences just aren't used to this type of storytelling, and they're yeah. not used to this level of drama, melodrama, um, melodrama of of the silent film era. Uh, it's not just a style thing. It's also the actual type of story that's being told. And it's because I think a lot of early films, just like the acting, was drawing from theatrical traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't a film tradition to draw off of yet. This is still, you know, the, the medium is like, what, 12 years old at this point. Uh, or no, I, I guess feature uh, 20, films 27. Feature films as we know them are only about 12 years old. Cinema mm-hmm. goes back, you know, it's yet another about, decade. But, at least three decades. Yeah, but... Uh, but yeah, this is clearly pulling from uh, those big moments that you would see in a stage play or specifically in opera. Mm-hmm. The kind of moments where 
the story is told through emotions and because we can't rely on dialogue, we can only have the visuals and the characters. We have to tell these gigantic stories about these gigantic, tragic moments of returning home from the war with your best friend's good luck charm, having to admit to his loved ones that you were the one who killed him while you're having to hold in that the woman you've loved never loved you. Uh, that that's a lot. That's a lot. It's not as as much as say like Eric von Stroheim's Greed, which was a nine hour film that <laughs> ended with a fellow giving up, like dying of thirst in the desert with his one beloved pet bird. And the last <laughs> shot of the movie is he lets his pet bird go and it dies mid air and lands on his empty canteen. It's like Jesus Christ, Eric von Stroheim can't play something a little close to the chest. Well, that's the thing with silent cinema. Mm. Subtlety was kind of not an option. Mm. You needed to tell your story visually, which is why we have all of these big visual signifiers, mm. like in a lot of these movies. And as a result, the stories felt very, very big. You really <laughs> needed to bring people to the audience. You need to make sure their eyes stayed on the screen the whole time. And you can't do that by underplaying it. You mm. do that by sucker punching them <laughs> at every opportunity. And there was a real delicacy to doing it well. Mm. To, to to not being delicate, you need to be delicate. It's kind of <laughs> ironic, but it's true. And Wings really does it well. And I totally, mm. I love the racket. I think the, I'm really glad. Even if this, even if people don't pick up this podcast mm. uh, for 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 series, oh. I'm glad I saw the racket because yeah, I probably I wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, it's fun. Wings is the shit. Wings <laughs> well, is a good is a good movie. Wings is a legit good film, and there's even something more going on in Wings that we haven't talked about yet, and it's the nature of male friendship. Mm. Um, there is a rather famous a kiss in this movie between Jack and David. Um, they have come to this point where they they have to say farewell, and they lean in and they kiss each other on the mouth. And a lot of people have took this to mean that maybe they were lovers or that they were sexually attracted to each other, and I don't think that's the case. Mm. I think male friendship has had to evolve dependent on where uh, society's views of homosexuality are. Um, these people are not lovers. These are two straight guys who are very, very close <coughs> to one another. And when you look back to some of the early days of cinema... Uh, Homosexuality, or just in this era, homosexuality wasn't allowed to be talked about. Uh, it, it just wasn't part of the conversation in any sort of meaningful way. Uh, the closet was locked so tight that people didn't even see that there was a closet. And men in this environment, when they couldn't, when they weren't being accused of being gay, could actually be warmer and closer with one another. They could share these kinds of intense physical friendships hmm. uh, without it being construed as a romance. It wasn't until homosexuality started to get talked about that people started seeing that as a potential relationship between two men. And with the Hayes Code, which, you know, homosexuality was way out of the Hayes Code. You yeah, couldn't you talk about it at all. Um, those sorts of male friendships had to be restaged and rethought about. Mm -hmm. And m men could not have public friendships with that level of emotional intensity because they didn't want to be called out as gay. Uh, as such, you can watch something like Wings and there's this very liberating idea to this idea of men, straight men, being able to have these intense relationships. Or, I'm sorry, without even, even without this notion of gay panic being sort of shoved at them from this weird moral majority that started to float around thanks to something like the Hayes Code. That's, I think that's all true. However, mm. I do think that if you want to look at this movie and say that there is something, mm. an undercurrent of, of romance mm. or homoeroticism between them, I think it doesn't dis disclude or preclude any of that. I think that's in there if you want that to be there. It, it's, I think it's, it's all a matter there, of interpretation, but, but regardless, I think mm. just the service interpretation mm. is exactly what you're saying. Mm. And it is something that's really rare today. Yeah, yeah. You almost never see it. Well, and it, even when we have films about male friendships, it's always staged within something with, within machismo. Like, uh, there, there's the, that 
rather wonderful film, I Love You Man, mm. uh, which is about a very intense friendship. Well, not an intense friendship, just a mm. friendship between two grown men. And an intimate friendship. Yeah, a friendship that, that actually develops. Mm. Uh, it's not based on we just happen to like rush. They actually learn to trust mm. each other and care about yeah. each other. That's a really sweet movie. I was actually thinking of a film with another epic uh, scope, but mm. um, another contemporary film that did this was Lord of the Rings. Particularly mm. between uh, Frodo and Samwise, their oh, relationship is, is incredibly intimate and incredibly mm. emotional. Yeah, and I think a lot of people and, and, it's, and it's about as over the top as a silent movie yeah, as films. I, and I think a lot of people uh, have interpreted that film as saying that those two characters are gay. And if you right. want to do that, that, that's I think it's in there. I think it's also just you can also just be that connected as well. Mm. Um, it, it, it's it's something that really shouldn't I, be as taboo yeah. as it is. It's well, a, it's I, and I'm, I'm thinking that. But the argument saying, you know, that if you want to see these two men as as lovers at some point, or maybe they were lovers when they were teenagers, who's to say? I th- oh, excuse me, my phone. That was Whitney's phone. That was my phone. I apologize for that. Um, I think that's a modern interpretation. I think that's us bringing something new to it that wasn't in any of the filmmakers' heads in 1927. At the same time, though, does that make it wrong? I mean, that's no, all it doesn't make have. it. It I doesn't mean, make it wrong. I'm saying that this. V- the view of male relationships and the way two men can relate to one another was different in 1927. Fair enough. Well, um, I I think we've already answered the question, but I think if we continue this podcast, what we should answer is, what would you have voted for? Uh, I you know what? I would have voted for the racket because I would I would have gone I would have gone for the dark horse because I'm a contrarian dick that way. You would have voted for Ellie Confidential over Titanic. Exactly. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> to this day, I vote for Ellie Confidential over Titanic. Well, fair enough. I think I would have voted for Wings. In okay. the, although I did love the I do love the racket, and I definitely mm-hmm. would have wanted to give it. A, I don't think it was nominated for anything else, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I do love it. So um, now the interesting thing. About this particular year at the Academy Awards this was the only year mm. in which Outstanding Picture had two categories. Now, we are talking about in this episode mm. the Outstanding Picture, which was then retroactively redubbed Best Picture. Mm. Uh, however, for the first year of the Academy Awards, they were considered two equal categories Outstanding Picture and Best Unique and Artistic Picture, which so is essentially like, basically crowd pleaser. And art, art film. film. Yeah. If we continue this, the next episode, it's the only time we'll ever spend more than one episode on one year of the Academy Awards, we would also focus on the other nominees. And the other nominees for Best Unique and Artistic Picture were uh, The Crowd, mm-hmm. uh, which was a King Vidor uh, mm-hmm. motion picture. Um, and uh, we would also talk about... I think it was a, a Marion C. Cooper. Yeah, it was a Marion C. Cooper uh, sort of adventure film called Chang, a drama of the wilderness. And we would talk about F.W. Murnau's Songrise, a song of two humans. Songrise? Sunrise. Sunrise. <laughs> no, I did that. Sunrise, a song of two humans, which is a also starred Janet Gaynor, uh, who was in Seventh Heaven, and is a story about a man who is about to kill his wife and run off with his mistress when he suddenly realizes... He doesn't no, want to do that anymore. He actually, yeah. he actually loves his wife. Mm. And... Boy, does that movie get weird, but it's incredible. And doesn't, I, it's, it doesn't get weird. It gets it's wonderful. It's, it's a beautiful an, movie. It's an odd juxtaposition of uh, tone, and I'd be very excited mm-hmm. to talk about that with you if this podcast mm-hmm. continues. However, this podcast might not continue. You get to choose. Uh-huh. Uh, if you are on our Patreon uh, uh, service, if you're a subscriber on Patreon, uh, at any tier, you get to vote for this. Um, one of our Cancel Too Soon pilot season podcasts will continue on as a Patreon exclusive. And as a quick reminder, in case you want to go back and this you, you're mm. new, uh, the nominees were uh, Cancel Too Soon, The Home Game, in which Whitney Seibold and I review uh, defunct game shows. Mm. We started with Donald Trump's early 90s game show, Trump Card. Uh, option number two was Average Fest, in which Whitney Seibold and I... Uh, Proceed to search for the most mediocre movie ever made. To find the soul of Hollywood. Yeah, we have to walk the middle path. What's the two starriest movie (laughs) it's ever had two stars? And the first episode was about Mickey Blue Eyes, which is. 
pretty damned average, mm-hmm. right down the middle. It was an interesting conversation. I'm glad we did it. Uh, the next uh, nominee was The Randomizer, in which Whitney Seibel and I review uh, a long-running television series, but rather than watch the whole thing, we pick one random episode from the middle and try to figure it out from there. These, these are shows we are not familiar with at all. And uh, we started that off with an episode of Desperate Housewives. Uh, and then, of course... All the best mm. is the final option. And we would continue doing, uh, on a monthly basis, uh, one episode of all the nominees for Best Picture in any given uh, year. And mm. we would go in order until we eventually caught up, and that would take a while. <laughs> but by God, we would do it. Um, and uh, I would love to do all of, every single one of those. We do not have the time to do every single one of those, so it's all going to depend mm. on you. Uh, so you a couple what? of days it, after this premieres, we're going to put up a poll on patreon.com slash cancel too soon, and our patrons can vote. If, if we suddenly get 1,000 Patreon subscribers, we could do them all. If just if, uh, if, 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 if they, all of a sudden if, we if were to were jump all from one dollar subscribers, we could probably do that. I suppose so. <laughs> that would be the at, 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 at the varied levels. <laughs> if we were suddenly to get like a huge yeah. influx of subscribers, yeah. we could. Nothing would make me happier mm. than to just podcast. Just for podcast a for a living. Nothing. Yeah. I, well, okay, a couple of things to make me happier, but one of like the best <laughs> things we could possibly do would be mm. to just podcast for a living because I love doing mm. this with you. We have so many ideas for things we want to do, and Damn. we only have so many hours in the day. Well, what would else? Nacho tester. I'm not really that big in the nachos. Haunted mini golf designer. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> not gonna lie, that's, that might be the best fictional job I've ever heard of. Specifically, haunted mini golf. Haunted, Love it. Get to design haunted mini golf courses. Uh, but stick around because cancel too soon as well. We'll continue. Uh, uh, regardless, uh, we are entering our second uh, uh, full year. Uh, mm-hmm. Doing the podcast uh, coming up next in about a week and a half, we are going to have the canceled too soon awards, in which Whitney Seibold and I will be uh, looking back at all the best, worst, and weirdest TV series we reviewed from uh, throughout the history of television uh, over the course of the last year. And do not forget that you are going to vote for one of those awards. One of the awards is for best episode of Cancelled Too Soon. Mm. It's not necessarily the best show we reviewed, just the episode of the podcast you liked the most. And this is Mm -hmm. good for two reasons. One, Mm. it tells us uh, what type of shows you like us to review, what type of tone you like us to strike, what type of humor you like us to have, do you like us to be dead serious, do you like us to cover something famous, something obscure, whatever. We pay attention to how the votes go. Uh, But also, two of the people who vote for the Cancel Too Soon Awards, uh, will win prizes. We're going to put every voter's name in a hat. Mm. Grand prize winner is going to get to force us to review a Cancel Too Soon series of their choosing, just so long as it fits our rules and we can find it. Everything Mm. else is fair game. Uh, And the runner-up will get to pick an episode of the Cancel Too Soon monthly movie. You can force us to watch any TV movie, miniseries, special, TV ephemera of your choice. Mm. So to... Uh, vote. You can go to patreon.com slash cancel too soon. There is a posting uh, for everyone to put their votes there. Or if you're not a Patreon subscriber and cannot afford to, we understand, you can still vote and you can still be entered into the drawing. You just have to email us canceled too soon at gmail.com. That's canceled with one L. Mm-hmm. Cancel too soon at gmail.com. Just put cancel too soon awards in the subject heading so we do not miss your votes. We do not want to miss your votes. Uh, and the winner will be uh, the winner of the award will be announced on the podcast, uh, the next cancel too soon podcast. And the winner of the drawing will be we'll put up in a YouTube video so you can see us do it live so you know there's no funny business. Yeah. Um, so that's what's coming up. We're also coming up on our big 100th episode. We have a lot of cool uh, uh, shows are going to be doing obscure and otherwise but the next three proper episodes of Cancel Too Soon will be a countdown of three of our most commonly requested shows. Mm-hmm. To, to date. To date. Mm-hmm. And of course we have a ton but Three of the big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we might even have a special guest. We are working on at least one special guest mm-hmm. uh, for that time. So stick around. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, thank you, every one of our Patreon subscribers, for supporting us. Uh, thank you, everybody, who follows us on Twitter. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. The podcast is at CancelCast, and that is a wrap, folks. We'll see you next season. Next Oscars? No. See, you. see you next year. At the Oscars. At the Oscars. Man. <laughs>